Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Now, please be sure that you bookmark acons.substack.com. It's where you'll find all of our social media handles, uh, links to this podcast, as well as options to be able to support and sustain our work. I have to tell you uh, a little story in order to set up today's show. So you know that Acon started 2009. Um, and at the time, we were uh, practicing our uh on on camera patter or on mic patter. Um, and so we recruited a couple of friends and we did a comic book themed show. Uh, and it was the three founders, DK, Sebastian, and I with two friends. And every time I mention this, the friends are always like, we're just the unnamed friends. So Wills and Polly, you are now mentioned now. Um, and so we had this comic book themed show and we talked about comic books and I mean, geek level. I mean, these guys know their comic books. I was kind of a Harvey girl. I'm a kind of a uh, DC villain, girl villain girl. Um, but these guys know like history and the first appearance of and the origin stories. And I mean, everything they've stood in line. Some of them have met, you know, some of the iconic greats like Stan Lee. So, I mean, these stories that these guys would tell, and I mean, it got, like I said, we're big fanboys and fangirls here at Acons. So, um, it's a, a pretty exciting day at Acons here uh, to have the cadre of uh, creative types that we've had on recently. We had uh, Eric July, we had uh, Mike Barron, and today we have the incomparable Chuck Dixon. Chuck Dixon is a veteran comic book writer whose work on such titles um, as Detective Comics, Nightwing, Robin, Birds of Prey, and The Punisher, as well as his work uh, in the creation of characters like Bane, have filled long boxes for decades. He writes for several creator-owned uh, projects, such as the upcoming project for Eric July's Ripperverse. You'll remember Eric uh, was on in December, I believe, and Joe Frankenstein with longtime collaborator Graham Nolan. He's also a successful multi-genre novelist whose uh, latest works are uh, whose latest work is entitled "The Siege of the Black Citadel." So please, well, uh, help me in welcoming Chuck Dixon to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Very good. Wow. That's uh, I'm going to be walking on air after that intro. I'm incomparable. <laughs> incomparable. Really, truly, you are. And so thank you for all your many contributions to the art. It's, it's amazing. Well, it was all fun. <laughs> One of the constants that we hear uh, in interviews with legendary figures in the comic book in industry uh people like you, uh, Jim Shooter, Mark Wade, uh, Jim Lee, was that they developed a passion for that world very young. Alex Ross, for example, shares drawings he did of superheroes when he was still in preschool. That passion 
uh, does not seem to be there among contemporary writers, however. Uh, is that your impression? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, back when I got in comics, you got in comics with the intent that you were going to do it for the rest of your life. And uh, a lot of the writers I see now, uh, it's a stepping stone to better things. Uh, you know, they want to be novelists or screenwriters or they want to work for MTV. So they're not in it to win it. They're not in it for life. Uh, there's the, the passion isn't there. DC and Marvel uh, are uh, minute revenue generators for their parent companies, Warner Brothers, uh, Discovery, and Disney. So it matters little to these multi-billion dollar corporations if the latest issue of Batman sells 100,000 copies or 10,000 copies, as long as they have Batman IP available for movies, uh, TV shows, T-shirts, and so on. But if these books were licensed to smaller publishers who would depend on comic sales, to keep the lights on, would it necessarily follow that consumers should get better books? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something that should have happened a long time ago. Uh, Marvel played with it by uh, licensing some of their stuff out to IDW. Uh, but I, I, I really would fervently wish that Marvel and DC would ju just both become licensing houses uh, and stop messing up their own stuff and uh, let, you know, Creators who aren't indifferent, <laughs> you know, creators who are into it, uh, you know, uh, create the kind of stuff that readers want to see uh, because they're not doing it now. I mean, readers have fled um, DC and Marvel in droves. That's absolutely right. Now, one of the most talked about topics this week uh, has been the firing of Tucker Carlson. Uh, interestingly, Tucker's latest guest was a pizza delivery man <laughs> who had <laughs> an encounter with a carjacker. One of your recent projects also involves a pizza delivery man who has a unique encounter, but with a monstrous protector. We're going to see a clip right now from uh, Joe Frankenstein. How cool is that? Pretty what cool. can you tell? <laughs> what can you tell us about Joe Frankenstein? Uh, well, it's uh, something that it, it's something that Graham came up with, and then uh, kind of brought me on board with. Uh, we were both big fans of the old Universal horror movies, and uh, particularly Graham. He's really a devotee of those movies from the '30s and '40s. And um, this is kind of an updating not not updated for modern audiences but just kind of um 
you know, bringing the Frankenstein monster into the 21st century. And uh, it's, um, you know, we did it a, a few years ago at IDW, but that went out of print pretty quickly. And now we, we have a new edition uh, available through Indiegogo. Uh, that's a, a better edition. We, we, we did new lettering, and, uh, new formatting, and there's lots of extra goodies inside. So, but it's um, yeah, a, a lot of fun to work on. I'm, I'm really glad Graham brought me into it. it was, uh, it's a blast. That's pretty cool. Uh, now, much like Tucker, your fans were shocked when in 2008, you announced that you were not employed by DC in any capacity while uh, in the middle of a popular run of Robin. Can you walk us through how that happened? Well, I mean, they, they called me, um, cause they were, they, in one of their massive multi issue company wide events, they had killed spoiler Stephanie Brown, a character I created. And they called me and asked me if I would return to Robin, uh, to do a story where she returns. Uh, where, you know, we find out she didn't die. She, she's alive. And so, well, yeah, yeah, of course. I, I want to see that character back in in continuity, in canon. So uh, I agreed to do it. And then one day I was up at, in New York visiting other publishers and I stopped in at DC and they suddenly, out of the blue, offered me Batman and the Outsiders as well. So now I had two DC monthlies. So I thought, well, I'm, I guess I'm back at DC now. Um, and, and from my perspective, everything was going well. I mean, uh, the editors seem happy. Uh, there weren't a lot of changes to the scripts. I mean, I was back to where I was, uh, at DC in the nineties and, uh, you know, just a, 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 you know, you know, reliable content provider. And then out of, you know, as out of the blue as <laughs> them calling me to hire me, they called me and fired me and never really gave me a. Um, definitive answer as to why. Uh, and the most curious thing about it was uh, I'm, I'm a guy that works way ahead of schedule. So when they fired me, they had tens of thousands of dollars of material they paid me for that would never be used. So I don't, I don't understand the logic. I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, uh, I don't know what the sales were like. I don't think sales went down when I came back. Uh, I assume they they want they ticked up a little even just out of curiosity, but for whatever reason they decided I was no longer welcome. Wow! You recently tweeted, "quote The Bane facsimile edition is outselling most of DC Comics output this month." End quote. Why does Bane continue to be such a popular villain three decades after his first appearance? Well, there's a lot to him. There's a lot of nuance there. I mean, you know, he looks like just a big, scary, brainless brute, but he's not. You know, he's a chess player. He's a criminal mastermind. Um, you know, and, and his origin is, you know, I think his origin fascinates people. You know, born, born to a life sentence in a third world uh, hellhole prison. I mean, that's that's the heck of a beginning for a story. And um, I, I just think he resonates for the reason that, because, you know, I, because of all the work Graham and I put into it, because there was so much pressure from from my way of thinking for Bane to be successful, to Bane be accepted by readers in order for the Nightfall uh, event to work, that uh, Graham and I really sweated the details, uh, really tried to build a character that would um, have legs, that would continue on after the Nightfall event ended, uh, 
Uh, we had no idea he was going to be this successful. I mean, he's a permanent part of Batman's Rose Gallery now, and uh, I think we're still getting our heads around that. In the Nightfall story, we saw one of the most shocking and memorable moments in comic book history, comparable to moments like the death of Superman or the death of Gwen Stacy, uh, which was Bane, spoiler alert, uh, Bane breaking uh, the uh, Batman's back over his knee. How did it come about that DC wanted uh, that story, which would leave such an iconic superhero disabled in such a way? Well, our, our group editor was Danny O'Neill, you know, who is <clears throat> uh, the man who saved Batman. Um, Danny O'Neill is, is as much of a key figure in Batman's history as, as Bob Kane or Bill Finger or any of the other early creators. And he was being uh, told by the DC people on the seventh floor, uh, Death of Superman was so successful, we need a similar um, thing for Batman. A similar big event. Uh, and then he didn't want to kill Bruce Wayne. He thought, well, they'd already been there. And he, and he also didn't want it just to be a stunt. He wanted it to be a real story that would have real resonance for the Batman character forever. You know, that over time, uh, this would be looked back as a, a, as a seminal event. So he really pushed us hard you know, to take this very, very seriously. And uh, he's the one that came up with the idea of him being disabled. He, he basically came up with the entire framework for uh, Nightfall. And then it was up to us to, you know, work out uh, what happened issue by issue. But, but Denny was the, uh, was the brains behind the whole thing. Besides Bane, you have the opportunity to write stories about many of the greatest bad guys in history, including arguably two of the best, the Joker and Dr. Doom. Based on these experiences, what are some of your tips about how to create and or write a compelling supervillain? Well, you, you, you have to make him somewhat relatable. Now, that's not true of the Joker. I, I don't think anybody can relate to the Joker. Um, the Joker's a tough character to write for for one reason is if you write a bad Joker story, everybody's going to remember it. <laughs> so you you can't phone a Joker story in. Uh, it's got to be something different and unique. And um, the biggest help I got in that direction was uh, my editor, Scott Peterson, said, you know, think of the Joker as a guy who wakes up every morning, a different person. Um, you know, his psyche isn't the same from day to day. So he's dangerously unpredictable, uh, even to himself. So, so Joker is like the exception to the rule, but for the most part, uh, a great villain needs some degree of sympathy from the reader. Uh, something you can relate to some glimpse of humanity within them. I mean, Bane, is an example. Bane is a victim. I mean, he's born in a prison. None of what happened to him was his own fault. Uh, how he reacted to it was certainly his fault. Uh, he, you know, he becomes a, uh, you know, a, basically a very dangerous animal uh, based on those experiences. But but we can still look back, and he still has his moments. He has his nightmares. He has his moments of private vulnerability uh, that make him seem human. The same thing for Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom. Um, is uh, 
is relatable on so many levels. I mean, he has a tragic past as well, but he's also relatable in the fact that even though he's this big, bad, brainy supervillain, he's he's so petty. (laughs) He's he's petty and he's jealous and envious and things like that. And, And we can all relate to that. You know, and you see somebody doing better than you and you have that moment where you go, oh man, what if that was me? I wish that was me. They don't deserve that. I deserve that. So you, we, we see ourselves in Dr. Doom. And that's the most important thing. You have to see yourself a little bit in these bad guys so that they seem believable. Yeah, that's right. You know, Bruno Bettelheim wrote uh, in the uses of enchantment that we need those bad guys to be able to work out issues in our own human psyche. Because, you know, there's a little bit of bad in everybody just as there is good. So you're absolutely yeah, yeah. right. I mean, it's like when you're watching a heist movie and you're like all into the guys succeeding in the heist, even though they're breaking the law. So your moral compass is spinning. And, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Absolutely. Now, uh, when one thinks of a Chuck Dixon comic, one does not think of a team of superheroes banded together to save the multiverse, but rather street level characters, uh, heroes like Batman, uh, the Green Hornet and Conan. What draws you to these types of books rather than the other ones? I've always said I'm more interested in reading about a guy who's trying to make his car payment over a guy trying to save the world. I don't I don't relate to people trying to save the world. <laughs> I'm, I'd be suspicious of someone who said, I want to save the world. <laughs> it's like, well, I'll save it. What's that mean? What's, what's the world going to look like after you saved it? Uh, I think we've seen in history, there's a lot of people who are going to save the world, and it didn't turn out well for anybody. Uh, so I'm more about, like I said, relatable characters. Uh, I'm more into the slob hero, like the Punisher and Conan, guys like that who, um, you know, I mean, comic book characters at their very base are uh, wish fulfillment characters. And I've always, my wish fulfillment has always been, you know, I wish I was a badass enough, you know, like Conan or the Punisher, one of these other characters, you know, just say what I want to say and to hell with anybody, and you know, do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's, you know, I, I guess it's all negative male stereotypes. Uh, so, um, but that's, but, but, you know, that's what the wish fulfillment is. I mean, these characters free us uh, from the, you know, the mores and the constraints and the manners of our everyday life uh, so we can live through them. One of the heroes that you've helped create with Anthony Gonzalez Clark is Cecily Diaz. What can you tell us about her and how can we follow her adventures? Well, uh, Cecily is the lead character in My Sister Suprema. Uh, it's a superhero parody and, and it runs on ArcTunes. It's, it's at the arcaven.com website and you can read it for free. Uh, and um, uh, Cecily's little brother randy uh he loves superheroes and he finds a experiment on a website and he recreates it to turn himself into a superhero but things don't go very well and his big sister turns into a superhero and so it's basically a sibling rivalry comedy set against the superhero background but uh you know, what really makes it work is is anthony gonzalez clark uh you know i'm right i'm trying to write funny but man he makes it so much funnier with his drawings. He, he is, he is just a tremendous talent. That is so cool. Now there are frequent controversies involving 
white comic characters who are portrayed by people of color in live action adaptations. But many comic characters who were created as people of color, like Bane, Damian Wayne, and Raven, are transitioned into whites even within the comic books. Some readers did not know the Green Lantern's Kyle Rayner was Mexican-American until they saw him holding a bag of tamales in space to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. What are your thoughts about race swapping? If a writer creates an, uh, an Asian character, for example, should future writers of this character pledge to keep that character Asian? The, the problem I have with the race swapping thing is I know because I've been inside the comic book industry that it's cynical. It's not meant with good intentions or anything else. It's, it's cynical. It's done to appease somebody or mollify somebody. And it's not done for the right reasons. The other thing is, is that I find it demeaning to everybody because you're assuming they don't want to, they don't want to make the effort and put the work in to create a character of color, whatever that might be. You know, I mean, I want to create an Armenian superhero. Yeah. Okay. So create him. Don't make Superman an Armenian. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it also presupposes that the culture that you're race swapping to doesn't have a culture of their own. <laughs> you know, and, and as we see, you know, Black Panther is, again, the exception to the rule. You know, a successful character who's based on, you know, uh, this sort of uh, fantasy based on African mythology. And, you know, why not do more of that if that's your intention? You know, why alter a character that's already in existence? I, I know why. It's cynical and it's lazy. That's exactly right. We had a conversation about that not too long ago about the whole race swapping thing and how exactly that it is demeaning. And that some of these characters are so iconic, you know, um, it just seems cheap to... Uh, rip them off. Why not make a new character uh, that has its own experiences, its own origin story, all of those kinds of things? Because it probably, you know, it takes a little while for that to get into circulation and books to sell. And they're just using the name to sell the comics. And I think you're right. That is a very lazy way to go about it. Yeah. I mean, who wants to be a gimmick? Yeah, exactly. Um. Speaking of swapping, many of us were blindsided when Tim Drake, uh, who we met in 1989, saw him date numerous women, suddenly announces that he's gay. Why did DC feel the need to make such a dramatic change to an established character? Again, it's a gimmick. It's it's like they're more concerned with going viral on the internet than they are with selling comics because this stuff doesn't sell comics. It does the opposite. It drives people away. Plus you've, you forever put that into that character's continuity. Um, I did a story in Robin in which his girlfriend, Ariana was almost date raped because I wanted to do, I, I wanted to do stories about issues teenagers were facing because I, I, I didn't want it to be, you know, Archie comics, uh, you know, kids are facing real problems, but I didn't want to do issue stories. I wanted to do use issues to create stories, you know, so this is a dramatic element. And Ariana was almost date raped. Well, Denny O'Neill is my editor at the time. And he says, well, why don't you actually have her be raped? And that would be more impactful. And I said, maybe you're right, but I don't want that in her continuity. 
because then that's in her continuity forever that she was a rape victim and then she becomes ariana the rape victim not ariana robin's girlfriend with a whole personality and character of her own and and now we have robin and he's gay and that's like the only important thing about it. you know tim drake's getting you know bi or gay or whatever now and that's our focus well, why should that be the focus of anything um I, I used in, in a recent interview, I used an example of the television show, The Wire. Uh, I love that show. And it had a lesbian character and a recurring gay character. But you never thought of them as the lesbian character and the gay character. <laughs> you thought of them as, you know, the, the one character was the biggest badass on the show. You know, uh, the most popular character on the show. Uh, and his sexual preference was secondary. And then the lesbian character, the police officer who was a lesbian, it, her story was dealt with in such a interesting and engaging way that the her sexual proclivity actually became an interesting part of her personality because of her conflicts at home, uh, which reflected the conflicts any cop would have at home, but now it had kind of a different spin on it. And I just love what those writers did because they made the effort to make those characters interesting beyond just a couple of gimmicks. Um, and, but comic book writers, you know, it's, it's just about getting, you know, mentioned on, on bleeding cool or something. You know, that's interesting that you say that because, you know, we were talking with Mike Barron about this and he was just saying, you know, the job is to write interesting stories, to make interesting characters that sustain interest, not to be, you know, whatever the trendy fad thing is, and I'm not saying, you know, that that necessarily is a fad, but I'm just saying to get on the latest bandwagon or to make the, you know, uh, it, as you said, the primary thing rather than kind of a secondary thing. And that as human beings, you know, there are certain developmental cycles that we all go through. And so when you talk about, um, growing up and as you said you know um how date rape is such a big issue on college campuses you know on uh for for women um you know these types of issues it's important to have that depth of character um that makes it so interesting that you go back and spend your monthly you know uh discretionary income on buying books so yeah absolutely right yeah, and it was important, particularly in Robin, because they were teenage characters. They were in high school. And it, it, there's so much going on now that wasn't going on when I was in high school. You know, guns in school, you know, the prevalence of drugs, teenage pregnancy, all this stuff that simply wasn't prevalent when I was in school uh, that kids are facing now. And, you know, we thought, well, we want them to, you know, yes, Robin is escape is fiction, but there has to be somewhat of the real world in there so that you care, so that there are real stakes and, um, you know, we're not just doing, you know, leave it to beaver in, in, a, in a cape and mask. Exactly. So now you said on your YouTube channel that mainstream superheroes are, quote, all avatars for the writer's political agenda, end quote. Can you expand on uh, this observation? Yeah, I mean, you you read them and the, like you. Like I'll read an ensemble superhero book, and all the characters have the same voice. <laughs> you know, they don't. Yeah. They don't sound. Di you could you could switch their dialogue around, and it wouldn't make any difference. And they're always, you know, either lecturing or pandering or patting themselves on the back or virtue signaling. Um, and it doesn't sound like, you know, the characters that I know. You know, it doesn't. It, it 
it's and and it's not you know like i said i mean i dealt with issues as stories but these deal with issues rather than stories uh, they put the issues first and it's like important I, th- I think it has something to do with job security. Like you can't work for these companies unless you're woke. So you've got to display that in the work. I mean, I've never made a secret that I'm a conservative, but I've never made it part of my work. I've never lectured anybody. I, I wrote, I wrote Batman as a passionate advocate for, you know, gun control. Yeah. You know, I don't, I didn't believe a word I put in his mouth, but <laughs> I put myself in his mind and I made convincing arguments. I had him make, you know, convincing arguments. I, I gave a reason for, for his passionate dislike of firearms. I mean, obviously from his childhood and things like that. So I wrote the character, you know, um, as he should be, not how I wanted him to sound. And with, all too often, they just alter the character to like almost autobiographical comics rather than about the character itself. It's more about the writer. You touch on such a great point there. And and maybe this is my own conservative bias, but it seems to me that, you know, for all the preaching about tolerance that we hear from people who are not conservative, uh, they don't seem to be very tolerant about other points of view. How has it been for you as someone with conservative views to be in this inter- this industry that is so left leaning? Um, well, I mean, back in the day, uh, it didn't matter. I mean, there weren't a lot of conservatives or open conservatives, uh, but I was a writer and you're meeting with other writers and you talk and I'm not one to watch what I say. (laughs) So, you know, I'll freely (laughs) give my opinion. And, um, a lot of writers I worked with had never heard anybody talk the way I talked. And, uh, but when it was all over, we just went back to work and we all worked and played nice together. And that all sort of changed uh, around the year 2000 and it became more overtly um, political uh, as, you know, a lot of the old guard editors were replaced by a new breed of people who were very, very much into politics more so than creating quality comics. And, um, and it, comics have always been clickish, but now the click involved uh, politics as an element. And, what do you uh, attribute that change to? Um, well, you know, like any company, it, you you get somebody in who has a certain viewpoint, they're going to hire people with their viewpoint. And so these people began, <laughs> you know, people that were left-leaning began to um, multiply uh, mm-hmm. quite rapidly as the new editors hired associate editors and assistant editors uh, who fell in line with their way of thinking. Whereas that was never a thing. I mean, I don't think Denny, Denny O'Neill never cared who you voted for. And yet he was proudly a, a bleeding heart New York liberal, you know, but he didn't give a damn about any of that stuff. In fact, I, I think he enjoyed the conversations, you know, uh, but, you know, this this new breed of leftists, they don't enjoy conversations. <laughs> they can't defend their corner. That's so uh, interesting. You yeah. know, those conversations, I think, are, are how you learn. Um, and maybe that's not the goal. Maybe the goal isn't to be uh, to expand your mind. I don't know. I, I, I see kids on college campuses and this whole kind of indoctrination. And I feel bad because that's when you kind of go away and find yourself and you're exposed to so many new ideas. And you cobble that together into, you know, what you're 
belief system is and your worldview. And it's sad that that opportunity seems to be shrinking um, because you have to use people's pronouns and you have to do this and you have to do that or you're canceled. Uh, and so, or, or you're labeled a racist or a bigot or whatever it is in an effort to make you conform. And that's sad to me. Yeah. I mean, it, the bitter irony is, is like you said, the, the, the inclusion and diversity are limited. <laughs> it's yeah. like not everyone is welcome into our inclusion and diversity club. You know, if you think <laughs> differently, uh, you're not allowed. You're not even allowed to talk we're going to shout you down or exclude you or, or not tell you where the next meeting is, <laughs> uh, which is crazy because I mean, I enjoy talking to people who have varying points of view, uh, particularly if they earned that point of view, as opposed to learned it. But now it's, it is, it, it's sheer indoctrination and, and, and what it's doing to us as a society is not good because we're afraid to talk to each other. People are afraid to say things. Uh, they don't want to offend anybody. I mean, that's not a world that I want to live in. Uh, you know, um, it's, you know, it's, it's just a sad place to be. That's exactly right. And we have to fight it. We have to fight it. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, after your work on Dick Grayson, Tim Drake and Stephanie Brown, you probably are a leading authority on Robins. How important is a Robin to the Batman story and why? Well, it's funny because when, when I was first approached by Denny O'Neill to write the first Robin miniseries, I confessed to him that I wasn't that big a fan of Robin. <laughs> I, didn't I didn't really understand why there had to be a Robin. And and Denny, you know, now normally they would say, okay, well, then we'll get another writer. But, but, but Denny, <laughs> Denny sat me down because um, he really he wanted me to work on it. And he uh, explained that Robin is a humanizing influence on Batman. As, as well as Alfred is. Uh, and he needs that. I mean, because Robin, you know, makes Batman more relatable, gives us someone to talk to. This is always important for a writer. And he said, and the proof of this, he said, was that over the history of Batman, whenever they would try to make Batman solo, take Robin out of the picture and make Batman a solo dark Avenger, he said sales always went down. He said, so co core comic fans thought they wanted loner Batman loner psychotic Batman, but the circulation, you know, said otherwise, uh, that readers wanted Batman and Robin. They wanted the two of them together. And so he's absolutely an integral part. And, and of course, as I began writing the character, I realized this, this character is key to the, the ongoing success of the Batman franchise. Uh, it has said that one can order an AI program to write in the style of Jane Austen or paint in the style of Picasso. If this is so, one could ask AI to write like a Chuck Dixon or draw like a Graham Nolan. Is this the future of the comic book industry? Well, well when I said our culture was in danger from the diversity crowd, it's really in danger from AI. I mean, really? literally a, a dagger at its heart and it's going to happen. It's happening now yeah. and it's happening right in front of our eyes. Uh, I recently had a guy propose a comic he wanted me to help him work on and he had pages drawn by AI. And now I'd seen comic book pages drawn by AI before and I was like, oh, this is laughable. It's never going to replace anybody. These pages he showed me were like, I, I'd read this comic. You know, I, I could not tell 
it was not now that was stolen the artwork was stolen from yeah. god knows how many artists uh that the ai had access to but um but it looked good and that's frightening and yeah they i mean hollywood already uses programs for writing movies which is evident from how dull and unsurprising most movies are <laughs> um but yeah i mean this is this is the end i mean what kid's gonna write a college paper anymore um and Trust me, when the comic book companies realize they can have a machine do the writing and the art yeah. for a fraction of what it costs, they're going to be all over. And, and you know, Hollywood, uh, publishing houses, all the rest of it. And and the thing is, it's AI is, it's not better than humans. I hate it when people say it's smarter than us. It's not smart. It's a stupid machine. They've already taught it to lie. Uh, so that's how dumb it is. And... Um, it's not a replacement for human intellect, but we have idiots in charge who think it is. <laughs> I mean, maybe AI is smarter than they are, but it's not smarter than the rest of us. And and the thing is, is it, it'll be a creeping thing. I mean, like I say, it's already happening. Yes. And 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 we already see it in movies uh, because when's the last time you saw what you thought was a really great movie? I mean, that really moved you and and made you talk to your friends about it, made you think about it. You know, I mean, you know, where, where's the Doctor Strange line? You know, where's the Lawrence of Arabia? Where, well, The Wire. The Wire is a series. I mean, no AI is going to come up with that one. You, you actually had to experience life to write a show like that. You had to see those things with your own eyes to relate them to an audience. AI doesn't know anything like that. Like I said, it's a dumb machine. Chuck, what is Spin Rack? Um, <laughs> spin Rack is... I'm not, I'm not a tech guy, so I'm going to do my best here. Uh, a spin rack to us, I mean, I'm, we use these grandiose terms like it's the next step in comics evolution, things like that. But, but what it really is, it's, it's a multimedia company, and it's based on intellectual property that's owned by Graham Nolan and I, either together or separately. So it's all of the creator-owned projects we've ever done in comics are going to be folded into this company. And it's going to be digital comics. It's going to be games. We have a mobile game coming out, our first mobile game in just a couple of weeks. It's going to be merchandise, collectibles, all the rest of it. And it's going to be a community. We're going to have a, a presence on Discord where you will be able to, you know, have open access to Graham and I to do portfolio reviews. We have, we're going to have tryout scripts so artists can try their hand at doing comics with the idea in mind that, you know, maybe it's a hobby for you or you just want some guidance on your art. Uh, but at the bottom of it, we're looking for artists. So it's it's a real tryout. And things like that, you'll be able to see work in progress. I mean, every step of the comic book um, uh, process will be available to you uh, through SpinRack. And the important thing about SpinRack is, is that, the, uh, to me, the most important thing is, is that Graham and I didn't license our IP to these to SpinRack. We are SpinRack. We're founders. We're owners. So it's creator-driven and creator-owned, and that's that's what makes it different. And and we're hoping that you know we you know we we're not even hoping. I know we'll be able to expand this to other creators. We already have a list of people that we want to contact. You know, once we're you know up and running and revenues coming in and and it, and it's a going concern. Uh, but we want to we want to escape the crowdfunding thing, and and you know move into like legitimate comic book publishing but in a different way. That's brilliant. 
I'm going to be sending my oldest over there. He's a game designer and he's on ah. Discord. So okay. definitely that's cool. So uh, how can our audience continue to find you online and follow your work? Um, well, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you know, go on Amazon, put my name in. <laughs> page after page after page or stuff there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm around, you know, arcaven.com. And uh, uh, Graham and I have the second uh, volume of uh, Joe Frankenstein available soon on Indiegogo. So look for that. So yeah, I'm, I'm out there. This has been so awesome to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we know you through your work. And so thank you so much for all that you've contributed to uh, our collective knowledge. Okay. And, and your, and your engineer is DK. Yes. Mm -hmm. oh, I really dug the hat. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to bring him on right now. So oh, okay, cool. this is the part of the show where he gets to come on. So <laughs> I dig that. <laughs> oh, he has a collection. It's not just the hat. I brought some of my pieces here. I got my little uh, Batman and Robin figure. Cool. This is my uh, Tim Drake action figure. Very cool. See it? Oh, neat. <laughs> well, as you can see, I got a bunch behind me too. Yeah, a lot of toys. I didn't know how much to bring to the show. It would have taken a, it would have taken a wheelbarrow to bring everything, but I would it's have show uh, and tell just, every week. Just wanted to show, yeah. Speaking very cool. Yeah. Chuck Dixon. Oh, very cool. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for being our guest this show. All right, it was fun. I like the questions. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You are welcome to stick around while DK and I talk, or you can peel off if you like. Okay. Um, this it'll should it should be posted up sometime later this week. And we thank you for being our guest today. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna an bug out and I'll okay. uh, see you again another time. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Wow. So how was that? I mean, that is pretty cool. Great Chuck Dixon. And that is pretty amazing. You know, it's funny that um, people say Chuck Dixon, they think of Batman, they think of Bane. Yeah. yeah. You know, to me, I think of Robin. You know, that's why I got my Robin stuff. I got my Robin hat on. I got my Robin action figure. This is the Robin he wrote, uh, Tim Drake, the Red Robin. Um, he's the definitive Robin guy, in my opinion. Of course, he accomplished so much. Um, uh, on a list of characters, but um, when I think of Dixon, he's he's Mr. Robin to me. That's right. So, what's on your mind today? You know, I want to talk about what everybody else in the world is yes. talking about. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Did something happen this week? You're, yeah. You must be referring to uh, Joe Don Biden's Don announcement Don that he's Don running Lemon again. Fired. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Everybody wants to talk about the firing of the Don Lemon, but let's talk about something different. <laughs> let's change the subject for a second and talk about the firing of that other guy. Yeah, what's his uh, name? Buck or uh, something like that. The guy on Fox, you know. Yeah. Tucker Carlson, that's what it is. And um, everybody in the world has an opinion on why he got fired. Uh, there's a whole list of things. And I, I think I wrote most of them down. I want to go over things with you to get your, your feedback. Because I, I wrote a Substack recently. It was mostly about the, the Dominion, Dominion settlement, which I was not happy with. But I, it kind of related to the firing of Tucker Carlson, because I think a major reason 
not exclusive, but a major reason for why he was fired was because he was one of the few people on television willing to question the authenticity of the 2020 presidential election. So if you want to go to Substack, you can read my thoughts on that. But I think I think that's a big thing because that's one of the third rails of modern political discourse. You can't not say that Biden won illegitimately and Tucker kind of implied that a few times and uh, and the main um, lawsuit, in my opinion, was a uh, was so popular among the left because they wanted to uh, drill that into your head, the big lie, they call it. So that's one reason I, uh, that he may have been fired. Others have speculated that he wanted to quit Fox. He essentially wasn't fired. He quit Fox so that he can run for president or be Trump's <laughs> vice president. Um, I'm not sure about that. You know, mm -hmm. we saw the emails when he said he hated Trump's guts. So, <laughs> oh man, I don't think he really wants to be. Uh, he's uh, a never Trumper, huh? Well, I he's a never Trumper, <laughs> but he just not doesn't have a personal like for Trump, and it would be a huge pay cut for him. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, president make like two fifty a year or something like that. Yeah. Tucker Tucker gets like, I think he makes like twenty five million from Fox alone. And he probably make a lot more, which is leads to the next speculation that he wants to start a streaming service. You know, either go to the Daily Wire, um, the Blaze would be a good place, or it might just be uh, the Tucker Carlson Network. You know, do what he's doing on Fox to Fox Nation and bring it over to YouTube, Rumble, the Substack, all those other places. You know, he'll face heavy competition from Acons, of course, which, <laughs> which which might be a little chilling for him because we so dominate those spaces. But <laughs> I think they're saying that he can make an easy hundred million a year doing that. So some people speculate he just quit. Why am I making 20, 25 when I can make a hundred? Be my own mm -hmm. boss, do what I want to do, talk about whatever I want to talk about, you know elsewhere so it's another speculation that there's a lawsuit in the in the works that it'll be coming down the road from a former fox producer named abby grossman who alleges bullying and misogyny among the tucker staff apparently tucker had a bunch of young men 20s and 30s work for him producers and so forth and these young men they acted like Young men. <laughs> I mean, not too college frat boys. No, well, not, not you know, <laughs> no. they, they the frat boy thing until they nearly forty. Sometimes, believe me, I know. So <laughs> they, he doesn't say anything uh, un, too untoward. I mean, they didn't. There was no allegation of sexual harassment or inappropriate pictures being sent to her or anything like that. But these are young men who made. <clears throat> loud jokes and uh, had a different point of view than she did. So it doesn't sound too legitimate to me, but. Well, is. but Fox has a type. Let's just put it that way. You'll never <laughs> see me on Fox News. I'm not leggy enough, blonde enough, young enough, thin enough. So, yeah. Well, you they, can, always get, you can always get blonde, so that's not an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can the guys look, can look like whatever. I mean, they had Bob Becker. They can look for like years, they can all Fox. They can look dead, worse but... than me and be all Fox, but you have to look like, uh, <laughs> what's that woman's name? Katie McIntyre or. Kaylee McEnany? McEnany. Was the, pre- the press secretary for no, a while? No. Yeah, she was press secretary. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a lot of attractive blind. Surprised you know. remember my name half the time. I, I resent that, Martha. You know, I remember <laughs> I these things that remark, well. right? I remember these I names. fixed it. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I resent that. I, re- I resemble that remark. Um, another possibility that I wrote down was there may be a, a lawsuit from, believe it or not, Ray Epps, who is um, was on 60 Minutes this week and complained about his portrayal on Tucker Carlson's show. And now they're worried that. That's going to be another lawsuit because Tucker, like anybody with eyes and ears, basically believes that Ray Epps was um, an instigator on January 6th. And there's some questions about who is he instigating for? Was he instigating for the FBI, the CIA, the the government, the Biden administration? Because you see very clearly on tapes that he's telling people, let's go to the Capitol. Let's go in the Capitol. So... Right. Despite all that, despite saying what he said and doing what he did in a full view of millions of Alleged. people. Allegedly. Well, despite all that, he <laughs> still he still says that he had nothing to do with people going in into the Capitol on January 6th. I don't know how that lawsuit would pan out too well, but what yeah. but it, it's it's a very strong possibility, you know. Another one is the January 6th tapes. Remember that uh, yeah. Kevin McCarthy gave yeah. uh, Tucker all this unseen footage of the January 6th uh, melee uh, that Tucker had on the show for one show. Supposedly, that was supposed to be first show of maybe a whole week of sh- shows focused around the January 6th tapes. Again, it was only for one show. Um, so there's very strong speculation that there were people telling Tucker, you snuck this bias this day, but we want to see no more of these January 6th tapes. We- Although it made gazillions for them. I mean, that was like one of the highest rated shows in history yeah. of, of, of Tucker. And Tucker's popular to begin with. Um, but yeah, that, that made them a... a boatload of money well the decision to fire tucker and the way they tried to repress tucker was definitely not rooted in capitalism you know if they if they cared no. about money <laughs> if they cared about money no. they would have tucker on five hours a night you know? yes. <laughs> plus the best of tucker in the morning so <laughs> yeah whatever reason they gave for whatever real reason there was for firing tucker it was not to help fox's bottom line although fox might see it a little bit different because they did fire Bill O'Reilly and people said, well, we'll never get someone who get the kind of ratings that Bill O'Reilly used to get. And Tucker kind of came close. I think he was just a half a notch below Bill O'Reilly in terms of ratings. So maybe they think that you know, we can essentially replace Bill O'Reilly with that. We can essentially replace Tucker also. But I'm thinking that they don't care about you know, the stockholders or the ratings, anything like that. They just want him gone. And my next point was that the people who seem to really hate uh, Tucker the most are the Murdochs. 
Now, it's been reported for years that Rupert Murdoch, and especially his two sons who are heir to the throne, essentially, the names are James and Lachlan, um, are, are Democrats. They're, they're centrist Democrats, and they're embarrassed by Fox. They're embarrassed by Tucker. They're embarrassed by Hannity. They hate they hate Trump. You know, the Murdoch empire has been very anti-Trump recently. Obviously, they want, they want to put their uh, their uh, hands on the back of what other candidates. Maybe they want um, Mitt Romney to come back. You know, they, I, I don't, I'm not sure if they like DeSantis too much either, but they're not happy with the political direction of their network. And they perhaps maybe thinking that they can um, change direction by getting rid of uh, Tucker, who is the the lead marcher in the parade. So, You know what's really stupid about that? It's kind of like what we were talking about with Chuck Dixon. It's like you've got a cash cow, right? And you sacrifice that cash cow at the altar of political correctness. Um, so you've got a conservative network, one that laps all the other ones combined and you've got the highest ratings year after year after year, decades, right? Um, and you do something dumb like this. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's just crazy to me that it seems like if you like money, um, you'd want it to keep coming in. Uh, and so I, I don't know, that just seems kind of goofy to me that you, you take uh, what is making you the most money and mess with that. Just like these stories that we talked about with Chuck Dixon, these are iconic stories that sell year after year after year. And then you're going to mess with them. You're going to mess with Canon. You're going to do all kinds of crazy stuff um, and uh, change these characters in a way that they're almost unrecognizable. Uh, and it's the same with Fox. I mean, Fox has been declining for years. Anybody can probably go back to, I would say, it was the presidential debates of 2016 where we started seeing this fissure um, and uh, where some of the, the cracks started to show. And it's been on a steady decline since then. And so people have left since then. Um, Megyn Kelly left. Uh, Shep Smith left. You can talk about Shep all you want, but, you know, uh, but he did have a popular show. I'm just saying, you know, and so you're seeing all this kind of mass exodus and, uh, it, it just seems like, why do you take something that's, why do you take, if you're Coca-Cola, why do you take Coke and make new Coke? I've heard that McDonald's is starting to mess with like the Big Mac. It's like, why do you take these things that work decade after decade and mess with them? just for the sake of messing with it. Because then you know what's going to happen, right? I mean, we saw what happened with Disney. We saw what happened with um, uh, Bud Light is, you know, a couple weeks later, it's like, oh, we're sorry we messed up and we're going to go back to the other way. And this person that did the whole Bud Light debacle has been put on leave or, you know, they're down in the mail room now, or I don't know, I'm sorry, female room. I don't know what room it is. It's the room where they have letters. So, you know, I don't know. It's crazy to me. So why mess with success? If I'm making money hand over fist, I want to keep making money hand over fist. So I don't know, maybe that just makes me a weird capitalist. Well, like I, like I always say, you know, these decisions aren't made in, with capitalism in mind. And like, nope. you, you know, Bud Light did not think Dylan... Mulvaney or whatever Mulvaney. his name is, mm -hmm. Mulvaney or 
they did not think that putting a transgender is going to help them sell more oh beer. but they didn't know remember they didn't know nobody mm -hmm. ran that by them nobody seems to know except the marketing lady that's yeah. now gone yeah isn't that mm -hmm. odd that no one knew yeah yeah and apparently that no one knew that having a transgender woman is not going to help them sell sports sell beer they have um them doing sports bra I saw a story yeah. yesterday where they're had a transgender woman selling uh, lingerie. They had, uh, I think, I think there was a transgender bride on the cover of Bride magazine. Like that's going to sell a lot of issues for them. Um, and talking and about, you know, it's such a huge population that's going to be worth spending the cover on. But you know, whatever. And it's like Chuck Dickinson. Chuck Dixon said about comics. I can quote him almost verbatim. You know, it's a it's a stunt. You know, no one thought that. You, you make this character gay or or something else that he wasn't a creator to be, it's going to increase sales. It, you know, sometimes they know it's going to decrease sales, but you get a lot of Twitter likes, you know. It's and that would make me mad if I were somebody in that community. That would make me mad because it's really trotting me out. You know, like I've said, you know, back in the day, uh, you paid to see the bearded lady. Well, now we see a lot of bearded ladies. And so it's kind of the thing where you go to these drag shows and you take your kids to see these drag shows, which I think is insane, by the way. But you take it and it's basically for entertainment value. They're not saying that what you're doing, uh, you know, is, is adding, I don't know, there are some people probably who believe it, but a lot of it is just kind of looky-loose, like when you're seeing an accident on the freeway and you rubberneck, you know, and so I'd be offended by that. I'd, I'd be offended by that, that I'm just this kind of, you know, curiosity, if you will, rather than, like Chuck Dixon said, you know, write the great stories about people and what happens, you know, in other areas of their lives is secondary to the, you know, what's front and center. That's just me. Maybe I'm crazy. Yeah, it's like what our friend Eric July always says about um, the comic book industry. You can't, uh, I forgot exactly what he said. He, he, basically, he's saying you can't make money off Twitter likes, you know. You can do something. Yeah. You can make, um, you know, you can transform the Wonder Woman into a she trans Wonder Woman or Wonder Trans Woman, I guess would be <laughs> Wonder <laughs> Trans Woman. And you would get all these great Twitter likes. Um, you would get articles written about you in these left wing publications and people would give you a, a glad award. How brave. How yeah, brave. How brave. It's about time and you get the get these people writing uh this is what we need we need this kind of representation it's about time meanwhile no one is going to buy uh wonder trans woman <laughs> and we've seen that in movies there was a romantic comedy remember we talked about this a romantic comedy called bros which is which is supposed to be a standard romantic comedy except that the it was two gay men instead of you know adam sandler and drew barrymore it was just two might be why i never heard of it uh <laughs> Yeah, well, it was a lot of there was a lot of talk before that movie came out. It was the gay romantic comedy, and it was released to great fanfare, and nobody went to see it. Not even the gays, apparently, because you know if there are as many gays in this country as people say, it, and they went to see this gay romantic comedy, the movie and their allies, yeah, you know, allies. 
if all the gays and their allies went to see the movie, it would have been a, a blockbuster hit. It would have been like Avengers Endgame, but instead <laughs> it was a massive flop. So uh, this pandering, to go back to my original point, it's not based in economics. I'll take one more point because I want to write about this for Substack soon. Is um, Tucker has a lot of allies and uh, the true American left, um, not the people on MSNBC and CNN and elsewhere who can call themselves the left, who basically just repeat everything they hear from the White House. You know, if Biden says it, it must be true. And they go on and on about um, ultra MAGA Republicans. They want to talk about Trump incessantly. And they're all agents for the deep state. And there are a lot of people on the true left who recognize this, you know. And Tucker has them on his show, Aaron Mette, Jimmy Dore. And they want to talk about... uh, the corporate media, and they want to talk about, most importantly, the war in Ukraine, which they are as opposed to as Tucker is. And and I think Tucker's effort to expose the deep state, along with his allies in the American left, I think that made it, it very uncomfortable for Fox News. So I'm going to write more about that, but I just wanted to mention it here. Well, that's a pretty thorough, comprehensive look at, at Tucker this week. Whatever he does, wherever he lands, we know it's going to be successful, uh, you know. And and frankly, I am hoping that we see um, some folks get together and do something for truth. I really and I've said this with a number of our guests, it bothers me that, you know, I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, when you heard your nightly news, they didn't tell you what to think. It wasn't opinion programs. It wasn't commentary. It was the news. This thing happened. And you can make your own supposition about that, you know, what happened and and why it happened. Um, those were things that you could guess, but uh, you got facts and you were treated as an intelligent adult and you could come to your own conclusions. And so whatever happens to Tucker and people like him, there are some other names that I respect in the space. I hope that there is a conglomeration of folks that come together and decide enough is enough. I don't care about this cancel culture. I don't care about this left. I don't care about my bottom line because these people all have more money than you know most of us could deal with in a lifetime. So let's just change the trajectory of history and leave a legacy and get back to truth. Because what they'll find is that middle America, most of America supports that. When you see these movies like uh, mm-hmm. Maverick and you see, you know, all of the religious filming um, that has come out and some of that stuff, and you see them make millions and millions of dollars, you know, and again, to your point, I know it's not about the money, but still that's what people want to see. So if you want to go to that base, then, you know, you just go to that base. And that's it for another episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Be sure to visit us at acons.substack.com. You will find links to all of our social media, all the commentary that DK has talked about today, uh, and uh, this podcast, and also buttons to be able to support and sustain our work. Uh, So until next time, 
This is African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash AACONS, and also you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash AACONS forward slash support.